Vaccine deliveries delayed. It obviously affects the priority groups, the number of first doses we can get. Why Pfizer is pausing production and what it means for the BC rollout. Communication breakdown in long-term care. How do you get from one infection to 59 in a span of two weeks? Families search for answers after the tragedy at Little Mountain Place. And a young woman stranded in the backcountry. Her life of adventure and what happened when she got into trouble. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. And we'll start with a tragic development in a difficult overnight search on the North Shore Mountains. RCMP confirming a short time ago the body of a young woman who went missing while snowshoeing has now been recovered. Catherine Urquhart has more on what happened and the life lost. This video showing the view from St. Mark's Summit is believed to have been uploaded by Nikki Donnelly Thursday afternoon. Soon after, the 21-year-old snowshoer knew she was in trouble. She called uh, her boyfriend back in Toronto, letting her know that she was in distress, afraid, and in steep terrain. Uh, he alerted the authorities and uh, we were activated to try to find her. It was about 4.30 p.m. when the search was launched for Donnelly, and it continued into the early morning hours. Several search and rescue teams using every possible tool to find her. We have night vision goggles going on, and we also have uh, an RCMP machine with FLIR. Donnelly was known to be somewhat experienced in the outdoors. The avid Instagrammer had posted many photos and videos of her adventures around the world. But the Toronto resident was alone and not well prepared. If you're wearing snowshoes and you get on ice, it can be treacherous. They're not meant for ice, they're meant for soft snow where you get flotation. People should have crampons on. Late Friday morning, Donnelly was located in steep icy terrain and she was airlifted out. Police now confirm she did not survive. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The federal government is reassuring Canadians tonight that a surprise announcement from Pfizer about its vaccine will not slow down Ottawa's vaccination schedule. The company's decision to delay vaccine deliveries for two to three weeks comes as new modeling shows that without drastic action, Canada could see a shocking spike in deaths. Paul Johnson reports. So the daily case count continues to far exceed to the peak of the first wave. The news from Ottawa Friday likely felt like a one-two punch for those hoping for some optimism in early 2021. The first headline, Canadians collectively flunked virus control goals over the holidays. Early signs of levelling off for most of December have been replaced by a sharp rise in cases in late December following the holidays. Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, released new modeling numbers that show the worsening curve is on track to deliver more than 796,000 total cases nationally and more than 19,600 deaths by January 24th. Because this is based on infections that likely already happened, the grim numbers are most certainly baked in at this point with Ontario and Quebec expected to be hardest hit. And then there was also this. I was informed that due to work to expand its European manufacturing capacity, 
production of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine will be impacted for a short period. That's Anita Anand, Canada's minister in charge of purchasing, with the news that a supply disruption is looming for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine only weeks after it first started arriving. Ottawa expects the deliveries will get back up to speed by the end of March and sought to reassure Canadians that our vaccine acquisition strategy has built-in redundancies with seven different vaccines on order and in numbers they say lead the world for per capita doses expected to be available. While short-term, there may be questions about how the provinces will distribute the Pfizer shot. Long-term, the Prime Minister says Canada is still on track with its original goal. This does not impact our goal to have enough vaccines available by September for every Canadian who wants one. Paul Johnson, Global News. Now, Dr. Bonnie Henry's decision to use all of B.C.'s early vaccine shipments right away is dependent on a stable supply and safely stretching the time between doses. So how will Pfizer's production delays impact the ongoing vaccine rollout here in B.C.? Richard Zussman reports. British Columbia has been slowly ramping up the distribution of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Now with this delay, a snag. Some of our efforts to, to ensure safety in a whole bunch of sectors right now are going to be delayed slightly with vaccine. And that's, uh, that's something we're not happy about, but it's just the reality we face. The province was originally expected to receive 28,275 doses of the Pfizer vaccine next week. That's now gone down to 25,350. But the big dip is coming in February, where the province was expecting around 50,000 doses in the early part of the month, now down to 25,000 doses. We will be looking at how much vaccine is coming in, how many people are due to get their vaccine in that week, uh, when, or those weeks when we might have less than we're expecting, and then we'll have to uh, make decisions about how best to optimize who gets vaccine at that time. The province has been prioritizing long-term care staff as well as residents and frontline health care workers. So the question is, will the shortage mean skipping some of them for their first dose or extending the time period past 35 days between the first and second dose for those already poked once? People need to be reassured that even up to 42 days and longer, it doesn't just drop off dramatically. It's unclear how the Pfizer shortage will impact the long-term rollout of the vaccine and whether it will have an impact on mass immunizations that will start in April. And the province is still grappling with who to prioritize in the next group. This concept of reciprocity for those who have been working as essential workers who aren't able to work from home, that we need to make sure that they get protected as soon as possible as well. Experts in the ethics of vaccine distribution say the province needs to ensure people the process is open and transparent, especially considering the rare cases that have surfaced so far of queue jumping. Public trust is the most precious resource that healthcare authorities have. Health officials are expected to lay out plans next week on exactly who will be prioritized in the spring, how the vaccine will be dispensed, and what the province will do if there are even more shortages. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. 
All right, here's a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for our province. We have 509 new cases, bringing BC's total to 60,117. Sadly, there have been nine more deaths, which means we've now lost 1,047 people to complications of the virus. A dip in hospital numbers today, 349 are in hospital. That's down 13. 68 of them are in the ICU. More than 53,000 people are considered recovered. And we are now left with 4,604 active cases and just over 7,100 people in isolation. Let's bring in Keith Baldry. Some encouraging news, Keith, when it comes to our hospitalization rates that we just saw. What do the numbers show when you compare BC with the other provinces, though? Yeah, there's a lot of measuring sticks you can use to find out how your province is doing, how your country's doing. And one of them is the hospitalization rate. I've been saying that for almost a year now. This is how long we've been at this thing. Uh, and again, to look at a per capita basis. And it's interesting when you take a look at the table here, how we stack up against the other provinces. The worst province right now in terms of the highest hospitalization rate is Manitoba. Uh, again, they don't have a lot of hospital beds there, so they have to be worried. Alberta is next. Also close behind Alberta becomes their neighbor, Saskatchewan. Uh, Quebec as well with a very high number of hospitalizations. Then a bit of a dip to Ontario, uh, which has a lot of people in hospital, but of course they're the most populous province. And then take a look at BC. We fare very well compared to the rest of the country when it comes to hospitalizations. A very good measuring stick to tell you how worse off provinces are because these are the people who are most sick. I talked to Adrian Dix, the health minister, about this today. He says one of the benefits of this in terms of the comparison, it means our hospital system is, still has a lot of capacity to absorb more people if that's what's required. Here's Adrian Dix. The key issue in Ontario and Quebec, one of the key issues, and everywhere, in Ireland, in the United Kingdom, in France, is hospital capacity. And we continue to be in good shape in hospital capacity. But what, we were, what we've been worried about is, a, 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 you know, in the post-Christmas, post-New Year's period, is a surge that we've seen in other jurisdictions. And to date, we haven't seen that here. So some of the other measuring sticks work out very well for BC as well, Sophie. We lead the country or lead the other provinces outside the Maritimes with the lowest per capita active case count, the lowest uh, mortality rate on a per capita basis, and the lowest use of uh, or lowest number of ICU cases on a per capita basis. So I think Ontario, Quebec, and the other provinces are a much more graver situation than BC as we seem to be slowly but surely flattening the curve. So let's just keep doing that. Yeah, a little bit of good news for, for us. Anyway, thanks, Keith. BC, though, has seen its share of problems. Family members grieving the loss of loved ones at Little Mountain Place are also frustrated and angry, claiming they were kept in the dark about the virus's rapid spread. As John Waugh reports, the BC Seniors Advocate is now involved in the push for accountability after a single staff case of COVID escalated into a lethal outbreak at the Vancouver Care Home. Two strangers brought together by tragedy. Meeting in person for the very first time. Bernadette Chung and Parbs Baines lost their grandmothers on the same day. Both victims of the most prolific COVID-19 long-term care outbreak in this province. I was terrified that this was going to be a death sentence when we put her into the care home. And, and it was. Families with loved ones at Little Mountain Place say they were left feeling hopeless as the virus spread rapidly throughout the facility. People were asking, how did this happen? And then all we got was the reiteration of protocols in place um, and uh, VCH on site. Despite assurances from Vancouver Coastal Health, strict procedures were being followed. Bain says she watched in horror at the lack of isolation, 
while on a Zoom call with her infected grandmother. During that call, another patient had wandered into the room, was hugging her, was giving her kisses. Families say the tragic timeline of the Little Mountain outbreak showed a lack of urgency and transparency from the beginning. On November 20th, one staff was infected. Vancouver Coastal Health called it a minimal exposure risk. Then radio silence on numbers for two and a half weeks. On December 7th, families left in shock. 59 resident cases and five dead. Then updates are only given weekly, but the numbers skyrocket. December 14th, 64 cases, 17 deaths. December 21st, 93 cases, 31 deaths. December 29th, 98 cases and 38 deaths. Then on January 5th, the last Vancouver Coastal Health update. 99 resident cases and 41 lives lost. How do you get from one infection to 59 in a span of two weeks and not give us any updates in between? Frustrated, it was families that leaked those staggering numbers to the media. We're not uh, trying to hide things from the public. Our priority is communication with family members. But even after families were informed, Vancouver Coastal Health initially refused to make the numbers public, worried about causing unnecessary concern. They try to brush it under the rug. They know that there's an issue. And, you know, hopefully in a few weeks, people will stop talking about it. There should be a sense of urgency. Chung and Baines welcome an independent review by BC's seniors advocate. Why were some care homes able to contain the outbreak and others weren't? These two granddaughters say they're just tired of their questions being dismissed. Essentially, they're telling us that our family members don't matter. Grieving families forced to dig for the truth instead of being able to properly mourn the dead. It's been a huge loss to our family. John Hua, Global News. More fallout from the travel scandal. Peter Berman, the head of UBC's School of Population and Public Health, resigns his position. The faculty who say he should have known better and why it's not the financial hit you might think. That's next on the News Hour. The American capital looking more and more like a war zone leading up to next week's inauguration. The threats leading to a high state of alert coming up on the News Hour. And a menu of mediocrity, the restaurant winning fans because its owner says sometimes, to be honest, his food isn't that great. Later. Right now, though, some ill-advised travel over the holidays has cost a UBC faculty member part of his job. Daughter, uh, sorry, Dr. Peter Berman, the head of the university's School of Population and Public Health, has resigned his directorship under pressure. Jordan Armstrong reports. Tanned by sun, burned by controversy. Dr. Peter Berman is the latest sorry snowbird to resign his leadership role. You think he made the right decision? I think so, yeah, especially being like the health and sciences. Yes, you should know better to be traveling at this time. There was no answer at a home Nobody near saw. campus owned by a Peter Berman. In a statement, Dr. Berman says, I took this difficult decision based on my assessment that the conditions of distress and division currently prevailing at SPPH make it impossible for me to continue to provide effective leadership to grow and develop our school, our community, and our profession in my role as SPPH director. As I have shared with our community, I deeply regret any actions of mine that may have caused this situation. While Berman spent the holidays in Hawaii, Daniela Barreto's mom spent the holidays in hospital battling COVID-19. Barreto is a graduate of the School of Population and Public Health. 
people in positions of power don't often see uh, the, the impacts of uh, what they've done. They don't often face consequences. Now, UBC isn't saying a parting aloha to Berman. In a statement, the Dean of Medicine says he'll remain as a faculty member. He has established an international network of senior policymakers and researchers focusing on institutional and governmental responses to COVID-19. Berman's pay reduction is about 10 grand. As a high pedigree scholar who last taught at Harvard, he'll continue to earn about $400,000 a year from UBC. Barreto is disappointed he's staying on as professor. I still think that it's very difficult to have legitimacy as a professor uh, when you are flagrantly violating public health guidelines. Heva, that's the Hawaiian word for blunder. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The Victoria City Councillor who travelled outside of Canada during the holiday season is breaking his silence and talking to Global News about the controversy. Charmarque Dubot had previously apologized on social media for traveling to Somalia, a country he fled with his family in 1992. But he rejected calls for his resignation, saying he wanted to continue serving the people of Victoria. In an interview with Global News, Dubot says he considered his travel to be essential. I wanted to support my family members with their personal and economic well-being and try to uh, provide additional support to, to them during this very difficult time. And the impact of the pandemic really uh, increased uh, the difficulty that my family had and an extended family and their communities. And, I, and it got worse. So I didn't want it to wait for the end of the pandemic and hope that my family uh, would be alive. Dubot also says he knows that many Victorians also have families abroad that are enduring hardships, and he realizes that his decision to visit his family was wrong. Up next, a weak link in COVID compliance. I'm having people from Vancouver coming to Victoria looking for road tests. How some are bending the rules, driving this instructor crazy. And the move to adopt Black Shirt Day in the fight against racism. Highway 1 eastbound before Willingdon has a crash in the middle lane, so eastbound traffic just getting by in one lane. This traffic now building up towards the Cassiar Tunnel. Save on foods and save on time. Shop online and swing by for quick, safe, and free curbside pickup. Super savings online now at saveonfoods.com. In Global 1 above Highway 1, I'm Tim Main. A BC driving school feels ICBC is getting a bit of a free ride when it comes to the province's non-essential travel recommendation. Kylie Stanton has more on the concerns about people taking road trips for road tests and what the Crown Corporation is doing about it. They'd have to signal mirror and shoulder and then they'd make their turn. When it comes to the rules of the road, Steve Wallace knows exactly what's expected. He follows them and he teaches them. They have to do lane changes as well. But in the middle of this pandemic, Wallace claims too many prospective drivers are steering off course, making road trips for road tests. I'm having people from Vancouver coming to Victoria looking for road tests. They're going to Nanaimo looking for road tests. Wallace estimates as many as 30% of the tests being conducted on Vancouver Island are for people who live elsewhere 
trying to jump the queue as ICBC works through a massive backlog after it put the brakes on testing during the early stages of COVID-19. Now the process is taking longer. Examiners required to wear PPE and sanitize the vehicles after every use. You gotta put on a, a different mask every time as well. But even with all of the new COVID restrictions in place, tests don't have to be booked in a driver's home region. And what I'm asking them to do quite plainly is test in your own jurisdiction. If you live there, you test there. ICBC says it has taken several steps to address the demand, hiring 80 temporary examiners and expanding testing services to 10 additional locations. There are more spaces now in the lower mainland uh, for testing than there are in Victoria. So it just does not make any sense to try and go from drive from Vancouver to Victoria to get a test. In terms of numbers of 429 tests conducted at the Victoria Driving Licensing Office earlier this month, only 12 were from the lower mainland. That's less than 3%. But critics say that's still too many. I think it's up to ICBC. You know, they've saved a lot of money over this past year. I think just about a billion dollars. Um, let's put some of that money into ensuring that we have the resources available to give people their driver's license. In the meantime, Wallace is running into another roadblock. Now my customers are having to wait longer and longer because of the queue jumpers from the lower mainland. It could be months before everyone is playing by the rules once again. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Well, it's not an event that's officially recognized by the Ministry of Education, but that didn't stop thousands of B.C. students from wearing a black shirt today. The movement to mark the civil rights struggle of black Canadians and push for the inclusion of more black history in the curriculum. Erin MacArthur reports. I was so excited. It's a day LaToya Barrington won't soon forget. Her kids went to school today proudly showing off their Black Lives Matter shirts. Especially because a lot of people don't think racism happens in Vancouver, and it does. Every day, everywhere, it's just not talked about. We will have a nonviolent demonstration here in Mentor. Black Shirt Day launched through the Anti-Racism Coalition marking Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday and coming just two weeks before Black History Month, it was hoped the symbolism could be used to press the government to include black history and the struggle for civil rights as a mandatory part of the province's curriculum. A petition with well over 10,000 signatures will be sent to the education minister. It's a form of systemic racism. Um, you know, you go to school and None of the teachers, none of the principals look like you, um, and none of the stories that um, they talk about in history reflect anyone that looks like you. The B.C. government says the request came too late for a proclamation this year, but school districts across B.C. jumped on board. In Burnaby, the grade 7 class at Marlboro Elementary ran with the project, making black history a part of their classroom all week. Talking about stuff like the Underground Railroad and quality, equity, like how you can be anti-racist. Considering the success of Pink Shirt Day and what Orange Shirt Day has done to raise awareness about residential schools, the first Black Shirt Day has exceeded all expectations. Organizers optimistic by this time next year, Black Shirt Day will be part of a larger educational component in BC schools. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still ahead, America on alert. And they were chanting like killing with his own gun.
preparations for next week's inauguration and disturbing evidence from last week's insurrection. Also tonight, the science behind the new class of vaccines and why they're so effective and safe. Smooth going on Highway 1 east and westbound across the Portman Bridge, as you can see here. There is still a crash eastbound Highway 1 before Willingdon, so that area seeing significant delays still, but here things getting back to normal. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $50 million plus and an estimated two Max Millions. Lotto Max, dream to the max. In Global 1 above Highway 1, I'm Tim Maine. The security lockdown in Washington, D.C. is increasing by the hour ahead of the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Additional National Guard troops are arriving in D.C. as dozens of state capitals are also beefing up security. And there are disturbing new details tonight about last week's attack on the Capitol. Across Washington, security is growing tighter by the hour. Restricted zones, razor wire, topping perimeter fencing. The National Guard increasing troop levels to 25,000 weapons at the ready. As dozens of state capitals also beef up security amid intelligence that right-wing extremists are threatening more attacks. There's a great deal of very concerning chatter, and it's what you don't know that we are preparing for. Today, disturbing details in charging documents against Jacob Chansley, part of the mob that attacked the Capitol. The prosecutor in Arizona said there's evidence that the intent of the Capitol rioters was to capture and assassinate elected officials in the United States government. The DOJ has since struck that phrase. Chancellor's attorney says he was following Trump's directions and will seek a presidential pardon. Despite guns, explosives and zip ties, the U.S. attorney in D.C. says there is no direct evidence yet of kill or capture teams. Today, the Washington Post reports attackers were within seconds of reaching Vice President Pence before Secret Service agents hid him in a nearby office. Capitol Police and the FBI tell NBC News they are investigating whether Republican members of Congress aided the mob. If they aided and abetted the crime, there may have to be actions taken beyond the Congress and, and uh, in terms of prosecution. For that. Also tonight, the D.C. police officers who fought for their lives last week are speaking out. <laughs> Officer Daniel Hodges crushed in the doorway. They ripped my mask off, stole my equipment, beat me up, sprayed me with everything. Um, I was able to, thankfully I was able to get out. Officer Mike Fanone screamed to the crowd he had children. Guys were trying to grab my gun and they were chanting, like, kill him with his own gun. Also tonight, the Secret Service and the Park Service are closing the National Mall, the first time ever for an inauguration. D.C.'s mayor is encouraging people to stay home and watch it all on TV. The unprecedented rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines is considered to be one of the most astounding accomplishments of modern medicine. As Linda Aylesworth reports, it's all thanks to the development of a new technology that makes the vaccine easier and faster to produce. Most vaccines have been made the same way for 70 years. First, the virus you want to protect against is grown, usually in chicken eggs. Then it's either weakened or broken up into pieces and injected. Then the immune system takes over. The way I normally explain it is that there's a, is a picture of the, the culprit, and this is what the virus looks like. So it's not that the first time your body's seeing those virus, your fighter cells are primed, they know what they're looking for. 
It's worked well through the decades, but it's a time-consuming process. New vaccines can take years to produce the traditional way. We're in the pandemic and time is, time, is not our, time is not on our side. So we need something that we can get out into the population as quickly as possible. And so one of the newer technologies being tried out involves the use of messenger RNA or mRNA, which is basically the virus's genetic instruction manual. With an RNA vaccine, what we're doing is giving the body the part of the instruction manual and saying, actually, you read this, you make the proteins yourself, and then once you've made those proteins, the body will realize that it's not meant to be there and will mount an immune response against it. The proteins that the vaccine teaches our cells to make are these spikes, the same ones that can be found all over the surface of the COVID-19 virus. So what can mRNA technology offer that traditional methods can't? The fact that we don't have to do all the work in the lab to create the proteins and read the manual and just give the body the manual means that you can get this vaccine into clinical trials much, much quicker. And speed is crucial in the midst of a pandemic. But what if there's a mutation in the virus that renders the vaccine ineffective? If a new strain comes along, you can adapt these vaccines very, very quickly once you have that genetic information or once you have the manual of the new strain. The unprecedented amount of funding and scientific cooperation that the pandemic has elicited has not only resulted in highly effective vaccines in record time, but new hope for the future. If we can see this technology with mRNA successfully applied, not only to other infections, but people are thinking about using this as potential treatments for cancer. So, you know, this could have really some very long-lasting positive consequences for, for medical science. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Yay, science. <laughs> Coming up, a Montreal restaurant getting rave reviews, but not always for the food. I don't like it. I tell people I don't like it that much. How the owner's recipe for success includes his sometimes brutally honest assessment of the dishes. And the quirky NHL schedule and more proof familiarity breeds contempt. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. It was sunny. Yeah. According to reports. According to reports, <laughs> it was sunny. I didn't personally see a lot of it, but it was out there. Christy? The, the window is behind us. <laughs> Yeah, you guys work way too hard, I tell you. It was gorgeous today. Happy Friday to everyone. It was stunning. We saw double-digit temperatures, and I'll show you the temperatures in a second. First, I want to show you a photo from the West Kelowna area. Uh, Jim Hall sending us this from a pond in the area. Clearly, the pond was much higher at one point. It froze, and then it receded. So, uh, yeah, it left these beautiful sheets of ice there. Thanks, Jim, for capturing these. It's almost like the beautiful patchwork of ice. You can see it off in the distance there. All right, so. Oh, yes, double-digit temperatures. In fact, at y, uh, in Victoria, uh, at the university, they reported 14 degrees today. These are a good four to six degrees above seasonal, and that's the case in the interior regions as well. But as we mentioned, yes, winter is coming, everyone. Does it mean snow? Everyone wants to know. Not necessarily. We sometimes in this scenario get very cold, crisp air. So it's still too early to tell. But what we do know is late next week, likely uh, Thursday and beyond, we are in for much colder air mass compared to the, as I mentioned, double digit temperatures we saw today. All right, your weekend, everyone. Saturday looking mostly dry, but about the dinner time hour, we're expecting that chance of rain to ramp up. Good news, though, it drops off pretty 
pretty quickly on Sunday. So we're back to some blue sky late in the day on Sunday. So your weekend is not looking too bad. And even into next week, it's not looking too bad. It's not until late in the week that we're going to need our parkas. So enjoy your Saturday with a bit of blue sky there. And for Metro Vancouver, we're going to see a fair amount of cloud tomorrow, but at least it will be dry for much of the day. Majority of that rainfall pushing on to the northern Vancouver Island regions, and we'll see it towards the evening hours. So you can see here by that five-day forecast, it's not looking too bad, but we'll wait to see what the latter part of the week as we get a little closer. Beautiful shot from Nanus Bay and uh, of that fog patches, and we'll likely see fog patches just like this again tomorrow. Thank you to Wendy for that one. Beautiful. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Christy. A Montreal restaurant's brutally honest menu is going viral and pulling in the customers. While most restaurant owners tout their tasting offerings, this restaurant is trying a different approach and it seems to be working. Ant Dai has been serving a mix of traditional and North American Chinese food for seven years. Owner Fei Gan Fei says he thinks his food is pretty good but not perfect. And his goal is to be transparent and honest about that with his clients through his menu. If I don't like it, I tell people I don't like it that much. Uh, some, some items I uh, bragged a little bit. Uh, so for me, it's just very natural for me. Each item on Aunt Dai's menu is accompanied by a description written by Fei himself. Of his orange beef, he writes, this one is not that good, but... It's your call. When describing his sauté sauce beef, he says, this is new on the menu and I didn't have the chance to try it yet. He also tells clients that he's not a big fan of his restaurant's version of these sweet and spicy pork strips, saying it's very tasty, but not the same as ones he's had in China. I was disappointed uh, uh, at our version for sure, but uh, you know, you cannot ask the chef too much change. Faye says he's been writing the blurbs on his menu for years, but it went viral a few days ago after a Montrealer tweeted that Aunt Dai is her favorite Chinese restaurant, both for the food and extremely honest menu. Over a few days, the tweet garnered tens of thousands of likes and retweets. It's refreshing, I think, to see some honesty from someone like that, from someone who makes some of my favorite food to say, this food that you love could be better. <laughs> Since the tweet, Faye says the restaurant has seen a boost in orders. And though he welcomes new clients, he doesn't want them to have high expectations. We try to be better, but we are not that that good. So we kind of, you know, the above average 70, 75, something like that. Felicia Perillo, Global News, Montreal. We're not that good. We're not that good. You know, we, we, we like lower expectations. They're easier to exceed. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you go to that restaurant, and if the owner's telling you and the guy's telling you it's not very good and you like it, it seems like a great night. Exactly, that's right. yeah. It's reverse what's, psychology. What's coming up? See, that's what coaches should do. Yeah. Pre-game interviews. It's like, oh, my team's terrible. Then they win. Oh, Wow, going low expectations. Uh, okay, the first two uh, Canuck games, of course, were against Edmonton, and those games were a lot more wide open than I think either coach would have liked. But Connor McDavid said he's not surprised. The hockey games have gone the way I kind of expected. Um, you know, a little bit more high scoring. Well, he's certainly up the level of scoring last night, getting three against the Canucks as those two split their two opening games. 
Also tonight, satellite debris. Never heard of it. Where have you been? Under a rock? New to me. <laughs> what were you born yesterday? Raised by wolves? Are you clueless? Hmm? Head in the sand? This is a Mick unhappy meal, as we say, just coming back from commercial break. Mm -hmm. yeah. We took your line, Squire. Sorry. That's okay. I'll <laughs> say it again. We'll all get a chance to say it. <laughs> the, uh, the Canucks had to eat a Connor Mick unhappy meal last night. He's, thank you. Thank you very much. He scored three goals as Edmonton avenged Vancouver's win on Wednesday, and now the Canucks have two straight games against Calgary tomorrow and Monday. Uh, before coming home for three straight against Montreal. But getting back to last night, barring an unforeseen circumstance, the Canucks are going to have to deal with Connor McDavid more than ever before because of the new All-Canadian division. And now Dreisaitl slowly drops one back. McDavid, not slowly, in on the right wing, cuts to the middle, wrist shot, scores! Whoa. Not only do the Canucks get to play Connor McDavid and the Oilers 10 times this year, those games are all lumped into two and three game series. So if he doesn't get you on night one, he's almost surely to get you on night two. And that's what happened to the Canucks. They held McDavid off the score sheet in the season opener, only to have the best player in the world torch them for a hat trick and a four point night to gain a split. We learned a valuable lesson tonight about how you have to come out and play the um, game two and three of a series. Uh, you win the first game, and teams are not going to want, you know, it's to come back and have a team come in and beat them twice in their own building. And, um, you know, it's a huge part of this league and is, you know, minimizing the streaks that you go on, maximizing the streaks that you go on winning wise. You know, and we can go back and watch the video and figure out a way to break it down. And I thought uh, that's what we did tonight. They did a great job on the kill last night. We found a way to uh, to kind of adjust and, and uh, you know, get a couple of big goals for our, for our group. And, um, yeah, but there's definitely going to be that, uh, you know, go back and, and regroup after, after night one and, and see what they're doing and, and, uh, and adjust. Sweeping the two and three game series will be rare. That's why with just a 56 game schedule, the standings figure to be jammed up from start to finish. So that's why everyone is charging out of the gate, knowing every point will be crucial to make the playoffs. These little series are huge. Every, every night's a four point game and, um, I mean, you don't even want to give them any points, uh, let alone just getting yourself to. It's, uh, it's important to beat them in regular, uh, regulation, too. The level of execution is, is, is pretty high, so obviously it's going, to get, uh, it's going to get better and it's going to ramp up here uh, going forward. But, um, yeah, I thought it was a pretty intense, uh, intense uh, two games. So tomorrow the Canucks get Jacob Markstrom. This is from last night. Watch Markstrom here. Gets caught out of the net. Now, Rasmus Anderson's going to make the first save, but Markstrom with no stick. The glove save off Mark Shifley. That was impressive. No stick, but he still has a glove hand. And the leather is flashed, and the puck is saved. Although they did lose in overtime. Calgary did. All right, to tonight's action. Leafs and Senators. That's rookie... Uh, Tim Stutzla, his first NHL game for Ottawa. Alex Kerfoot, son of Greg, owner of the Whitecaps, scores for the Maple Leafs there to make it 2-1. But then Brady Kachuk parked in front of the net. Plays a tough game like his brother does. 2-2. Austin Watson scores. It's 3-2. Then Derek Steffen scores. 
And the Ottawa Senators beat the Leafs 5-3. Good start for Ottawa. Sidney Crosby and the Penguins. Another game against their cross-state rivals from Philadelphia. Travis Konechny. He was the guy the Flyers drafted just after the Canucks drafted Brock Besser. Konechny had a big game tonight. Three goals. That's one of them. Ivan Provorov beating Tristan Jerry of Surrey, who had a bit of a rough game. They yanked him. They were down 3-0 in the first at one point. This is Konechny's hat-trick goal. And when you get a hat-trick and there are no fans, well, someone has to throw the hat on the ice, so let it be gritty. And that's one big hat. Only fits gritty. All right, to the Sony Open in Hawaii, where Nick Taylor of Abbotsford, they're still on the course, is tied for the lead. Let's show you why. Tee shot on the par 3 17th. Over the bunker. Bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. Almost an ace. Actually, that ended up being a par. But his third shot on the par 5 18th. Chipping it in for Eagle. Now, he started on the back nine. He's now at 10 under. And that is tied with four others for the lead. Ryan uh, Sloan of Merritt. It's pretty good right now. He is at minus five. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. All right. Here's Andrea now with a preview of Global News at 11. And Thanks, Chris. We're getting word today. The homeless camp in Vancouver Strathcona Park could be gone by this spring. BC Housing announcing that it's aiming to have accommodation for all 100 or so residents by the end of April. The camp took over the East Side Park about eight months ago. And White Rock RCMP are asking for the public's help in solving a mysterious crime. Someone has been stealing COVID-19 signs, signs rather, from the promenade. And and Pierre, those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris, Sophie. All right, and thank you. It's just weird. That is weird. Coming up next, your favorite part about Friday Satellite Debris is next. Sophie is just bugging me no, about working out and having to sit down sometimes. No, I just worry because you come into the makeup room and I'm just worried. That's One day I'm not going to get up? Yes. That'll be fine. We're already burning Squire's time. That's okay. I'm curious anyway. as to how you're doing with your work. <laughs> Getting back into it. Excellent. Um, okay. So uh, it's kind of request week here on Satellite Debris. This one is from Nimble. Uh, Chris saw it earlier. <laughs> and if he doesn't work out, he'd look like one of these two dudes. <laughs> Jim. Steve. What a surprise. Yeah, he's been a few of those lately. <laughs> Tell me about it. So, uh, what are you having? A problem. Do I go oak or walnut? Because I'm thinking walnut. Walnut. It's just so expensive. Why don't you nimble it? Why won't you tell me what that means? Sorry. No, nimble, do the fast little loans, and once approved, you get your money in just 60 minutes. I'm just so happy. Yeah. Whew. Good. 
Nimble, smart little loans, because unexpected happens. All right, cracks me up every time. Uh, Reese's Take 5 bar. Sounds tasty. Here we go. Mm. What's that? Reese's Take 5 bar. Chocolate, peanuts, caramel, peanut butter, pretzels. Never heard of it. Where have you been? Under a rock? New to me. <laughs> what, were you born yesterday? Raised by wolves? <laughs> Are you clueless? Hmm? Head in the sand? That's offensive, Trish. Yeah, Trish. You from another planet? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Trish, none of us have heard of Take 5, so who looks stupid now? Reese's Take 5, the best bar you've never heard of. And for the last request, the other day I was at the uh, grocery store and some guy was buying, like, you know, hot dog wieners or whatever. He said, hey, this reminds you of that commercial you showed where the guy talked to the animals. Why don't you show that again? Oh, my favorite. All right, why don't we show it again? Hi, I'm Jeff. In my Johnsonville commercial, we open up in the forest. I'm uh, out in the wild eating my breakfast, and all of a sudden, a raccoon come up and asked me, what are you eating? Told him, Johnsonville breakfast sausage, fully cooked and ready to eat. Squirrel comes up and asks, tell me some more about that. So I told the squirrel, tastes great, it's got great texture. Yeah. Turkey comes up <clears throat> and asks me if that comes in any other flavors. And I say, yep, comes an original. Porcupine comes in and he says, does that come in patties? I said, yep, they're new. Wolf comes in and says, how'd you learn to talk to animals? And I said, books. And the wolf says, touche. And we had a good laugh about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a breakfast sausage commercial made the Johnsonville way. Talking animals, always a winner. What an endorsement for books, too. And talking back to the animals, the humans <laughs> talking to the animals. So funny. But you know you can speak a language when you get the jokes. And notice they were all laughing. Especially the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. Good night, all.